Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be. You know, I don't watch a whole lot of television, but when I do, it's usually sports-related. I love ESPN and ESPN2 and ESPN, everything else that goes along with it. Uh, I just, uh, if I watch TV, that's typically what I watch if it's not cartoons (laughs) with the kids in in the house, but I enjoy you know, watching just different sports stories. And ESPN has a, uh, you know, a special called 30 for 30. If you, if you follow, you know, sports at all, if you watch ESPN much at all, you've probably gotten into that little series. It's basically documentaries that are done on sports figures through the history, throughout the, uh, th- you know, throughout recent history. And uh, one that I came across here recently that I saw uh, was one that just reminded me from, from back 20, uh, close to 30 years ago now, uh, of a fellow named Terry Fox. And uh, if you've watched that documentary, it aired just a week, maybe two weeks or so ago. And, uh, and I remembered his story, but I had long since forgotten about Terry Fox. Uh, Terry Fox was Canadian-born, uh, he, and he really was a key figure in uh, cancer research there in the country of Canada 30 years ago for a couple of reasons. One, he had been diagnosed himself with a form of bone cancer that required it around the age of 19, his right leg to be amputated. Well, as a result of that, he began obviously to, to, to be consumed with raising funds for cancer research and there within his own country in Canada. And so he set out to run a marathon of hope is what he called it across the country of Canada, starting on the East Coast, winding his way towards the West Coast. His plan was that he would run a marathon a day which if you've ever run before, is absolutely unheard of, especially for a person who's healthy, much less for one who is only going to be doing it on one leg and then with the replacement leg that he had been given. And so he planned to run all the way across the country of Canada with the goal of raising funds for cancer research. He set out, he began with increasingly as each day passed, he began to see an increase in media attention and it just began to become a frenzy across the entire country of Canada. Terry Fox was appearing on television shows and it almost came to the point to where the cancer research was placed in the back seat because of the attention that he was gaining as he made his trek across the country. Well, as time went on, he would continue to slowly make his way across until the point to where he began to grow weary, not just from the journey itself, But ultimately, as he learned that the cancer had returned, it had spread to his lungs, and after 143 days, his journey came to an end. He was hospitalized, and within the next year, his earthly life came to an end. He spanned almost 4,000 miles in just 143 days, almost a marathon a day, and to this day, over or, or almost half a billion dollars for cancer research has been raised through his foundation. Now, when I was reminded of his story, when I saw that on ESPN and I watched that documentary, I remembered him. I'd forgotten him for probably the last 28 years of the 30 since it occurred. And, uh, and I remembered him initially. One of the things that stands out, if you hear his story, if you remember him, if you've watched this story about him, is that he was a person who knew what he was striving for, and he was absolutely relentless in the pursuit. He stared death in the face, literally, until death stared back. And as a result, The life that he lived was a life that made an impact. Have no idea where Terry Fox stood in relationship to God. Have no idea if he was an atheist or if he was a full-blown follower of Jesus Christ. Have no idea about those details. But I believe he is an example of one who is a a, a picture, literal picture of what it means to, to pay the price and to absorb the cost of what it means to chase after a goal. Whenever we look in Scripture, and specifically in these recent days, we've looked at a person by the name of Stephen, In Acts chapter 6, Stephen makes his introduction. 
And we find him to be a person who was a follower of Christ. He was of Jewish heritage. He was in the early church in the city of Jerusalem. And Stephen was a person who had dedicated himself to serving other people. He was one of the original seven that had been chosen to wait tables to meet the needs of some of the older, widowed Hebrew followers of Christ there in the church in Jerusalem. But it was from that point that we begin to see that Stephen also was a person not only of good reputation, but he was a person full of the Spirit, full of grace, and one that God would ultimately use in a tremendous, tremendous way. And so Stephen would begin to take a stand for Christ that perhaps he never saw coming, a stand that would ultimately cost him his life. He would be the first recorded martyr that we read of in all of history who would give his life for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And as we begin to understand Stephen's, the picture of Stephen's life, as we looked at last week, he would stand before the highest ruling Jewish council of his day, the Sanhedrin, standing before those 71 members of that Sanhedrin. Stephen would take a stand for his faith, and he would defend his faith with such, such fervency that it would be very clear that he was budging and he was moving nowhere off of his stance for Christ. And it would cost him his life. The way that he would stand for his faith was that he would point out to the Jewish leaders who'd rejected the Messiah that throughout their history, they had chosen to rebel against God, to rebel against God's leaders, to reject God as a result of that, and then ultimately to replace him, whether it be with idols, false gods, or a religious system that replaced Jesus for who he was. And as a result of Stephen's indictment, as we would read here in just a second in verse 51, we find that he ultimately would give his life for the sake of the gospel. In fact, before we go further, let's just look at the indictment that God brings to these Jewish people through Stephen's words, beginning in chapter 7, verse 51. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who, are re- who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And so what Stephen does is, is that he lays out an absolutely blistering indictment against these people. Now what we have to understand is that wrapped up in that indictment, well, it, it doesn't say anything that Stephen was mean-spirited in the way he said it. It doesn't say anything that he, that he spoke those words with any sense of vengeance or any sense of animosity or anger towards his people. These were Jewish people of the same heritage as he was. And so we don't see any picture there that he was, he was angry at these people. He's just laying out the truth for them, which after all is a, is a great demonstration of the love of Christ because he is giving these people who had historically through their history rejected God, rejected the, 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 uh, the prophesied Messiah. He's giving them the opportunity to say, Stephen, you're exactly right. We've been cut to the heart. We turn from this sin and now we embrace the same Jesus you proclaim. So he was doing a very loving thing to put them in that position, but they would reject it. They would reject Christ, they would reject the gospel, and in so doing, they would also reject Stephen. Now, before we read of the close of Stephen's life here at the end of chapter 7, let's just take a second to pause and be reminded of some things that we've learned from Stephen so far. A couple of weeks ago, one of the things we learned from his life is that practicality is often the greatest enemy or the greatest obstacle to obedience. The practicality is often the greatest obstacle to obedience. Many times, the reason we don't obey Christ, and the reason we don't follow hard after Christ, is because it doesn't seem to be the practical thing to do. After all, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose friendships. If I follow Christ, there are going to be certain financial decisions that I'm making today that I can't make afterwards. There are going to be certain certain activities that I'm engaged in, that if I'm going to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, I can't engage in those activities anymore. If I'm going to follow hard after Christ, there are going to be some things I've got to put down that I like, and there are going to be some things I've got to take up that I'm not real comfortable with. And oftentimes, it's practicality, listen, that keeps us ultimately 
from following Jesus the way that he calls us to. Stephen, had he done the practical thing, would have never followed Christ. And yet he followed him because obedience is far more important than what is practical. Second thing we learn from him is that investment always carries cost. Investment always carries cost. If we're going to invest our lives for more than just our own wealth, for more than just our own desires, for more than just that which is important to us, if we are going to invest our life in the cause of Christ, the very cause which many of these early followers would die for, if we're going to invest our life that way, it's going to cost us. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11, you read through that, you begin to see at the backside of Hebrews chapter 11, not necessarily the front side, but the backside. There are people that paid a tremendous cost for their relationship, for their identification with Jesus Christ. A cost that many of us are completely unaware of, many of us cannot even fathom. So investment always carries cost. What are some things we learned from the Jewish rulers here early in chapter 7 as Stephen stood toe-to-toe with him? What are some things we learned about them? Just as a reminder, number one, you cannot embrace rebellion without rejecting God. If we rebel in some area of our life, and we looked at this last week, if we rebel in this area, say if God says to a single person, all right, this is the way you as a Christian need to operate in regards to, to, uh, 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 to the, the moral part of your life, to how you need to behave with members of the opposite sex. If, if we are going to rebel against God in that area, then in that area we have rejected him. And we men are real good at putting things in compartments. We like to have a nice little compartment for every little place. But listen, we cannot compartmentalize God. We cannot compartmentalize and put him in this area of our lives and say, this is the part of my life where Jesus is welcome, and then expect to run the rest of our lives by our own, really by our own uh, intuition, according to our own agenda and our own rules. And so wherever we rebel against God, it's at that very point we have rejected him. And if we have rejected him in one small part, we have rejected him as a whole. We learned that from the Jewish leaders. But a second thing we also learned last week is that rebellion is often a first step towards idolatry. Where we rebel and we ultimately reject God, it will not be long before we replace Him. And so rebellion, for those who may be embracing it today, is a first step for you towards idolatry because you will reject God where you rebel against Him. And where you reject him, by your nature, because you're created to worship, you will replace him. And so we come now to the close of chapter 7, the end of Stephen's life. And as we read this passage of Scripture, I've chosen to title this message, The Other Side of If. The Other Side of If. And so pick up with me there, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54, and we'll read down through the end of this chapter, verse 60. It says, now when they heard this, they, being the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers who'd rejected Christ, when they heard Stephen's defense, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The phrase, he fell asleep, is obviously a reference 
to the simple fact that it was there that he breathed his last, and it was there that he died and stepped out into eternity. One principle that I want us to see this morning that comes out of this passage of Scripture, and I hope you'll jot it down, is this. God's design for the Christian life is that of unconditional surrender. If you ask yourself, what is the design of the Christian life? What is the bullseye that God is aiming for? Whether that Christian be one who lives in the deepest jungles of Africa, or whether it is a person who is a follower of Christ who lives in the coastal region of the Philippines, or whether it be a person who's making money hand over fist with success at every direction, who's living out their Christian life right here in the States. What is the bullseye that God seems to aim for for the Christian life? To me, when we boil it all down to the very barest form, the simple design that God seems to have for the Christian life is that of unconditional surrender to himself. Now, before we flesh that out, let's just walk through this text and just pull out a few things as we walk through it. Verse 54, as Stephen makes his defense... It says that the, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who heard him, it says they were cut, cut to the quick. What does that word cut to the quick mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that they were repentant, that they came to a place where they understood the truth of what Stephen had said? No, the Greek word there is a Greek word, diaprio, and it means to be, to be literally to be sawn in half, to be sawn in two. And so what it is communicating to us is that these Jewish leaders had just heard information of such significance that it had such an impact that it would be the same as though it had cut so deeply as to divide them into two separate pieces. The impact that Stephen's word, words had had such a, a, a response in these hearers that it would be the same as being sawn into. They were cut to the quick. They were cut to the deepest part of who they were. The problem was that they were not cut with conviction because as they had continued in this rejection and as they had rebelled against God, rejected against Him, replaced Him with other things that they felt were more prominent, more, more uh, important than Jesus, they had grown such a hardened heart that they very possibly were not even able to hear the voice of God. And so rather than being cut to the quick by Stephen's words for, with conviction, they were cut to the quick with hatred. It says they began gnashing their teeth at him. That's reminiscent of Old Testament verbiage, Old Testament language. Psalm 37 and verse 12 says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. It is an Old Testament picture of absolute defiance, hatred uh, to the uttermost. Verse 55, we find something very interesting here. It tells us in verse 55 that from Stephen's perspective, and in verse 56, that he looks heavenward and he sees the Son of God, Jesus himself, into verse 55, standing at the right hand of God. Now this is interesting. It's, this, is, this is very interesting because what we find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is that Jesus, after he had finished his work for redemption as our high priest, in other words, the one that would not only offer the sacrifice, but the one who was the sacrifice, when Jesus finished his redemptive work at Calvary, in other words, when he had finished giving himself as a sacrifice to redeem us, to buy us back for all who turn from sin, place their faith in Christ. When that work was done, it was customary before him for the high priest to sit down when his work in the temple was completed. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that when Jesus had finished his redemptive work, he sat down at the right hand of God. Of course, we know at the beginning of Acts that Jesus ascended to heaven, and we can assume, putting Scripture together, that he is seated at the right hand of God. However, when Stephen 
peers into heaven. It was one of those rare instances in the New Testament where God gave the capacity for one to almost look out of this life and into the next. What he saw there was Jesus, verse 55, and the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, it doesn't tell us why Jesus stood. I can only assume that it was because it was for the purpose of Jesus soon to welcome into heaven this saint, this follower of Christ, Saint, not in a Catholic sense, saint in a New Testament sense. One who was uh, purchased by the blood of Christ, had come to Jesus in faith. Jesus was standing to welcome him at his entrance into heaven. And it was almost as though you could hear the words already, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so Stephen looks into eternity and he sees there standing as though to welcome him the very Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ. And he, he makes now one of three statements that we read of in this passage. Look at verse 56 again. What does Stephen say? Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> oh boy, he had, just, he had just ripped the cover off of this whole thing. Because how does he refer to Jesus when he looks up into heaven? How does he reference Him? He does not say, I see Jesus. He says, I see the Son of Man. And that's significant. That's very significant. You don't have to turn here, but just listen as I read in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. You can jot it down. You can read it later when we've got a little more time. Matthew, chapter 26. Listen to what it says, verses 63 through 66. This is a, a slice out of Jesus' ministry, specifically one of his trials. Listen what Jesus says in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63. It says, but Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, he said to the high priest in his trial, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. You see, when, Stephen's, when, when Stephen peered into heaven, and he said, I see the Son of Man, it would have immediately reminded this Sanhedrin, many of whom would perhaps have been at these trials of Jesus, of the very words that Jesus himself had said. And that was all they needed to hear. For Stephen to claim such a claim, as I see the Son of Man, Jesus himself, standing, and in so many words, to welcome his arrival that was soon to come. Verse 57, back in Acts chapter 7, tells us that they cried out with a loud voice, they covered their ears. Why would they do that? So that they would not, not hear any further what they perceived to be blasphemy, sadly, they did not realize it was truth. And it says they rushed at him with one impulse. It's the Greek word harmao. It paints a picture for us that this was a mob action that took place. If you've studied your New Testament and if you ask insightful questions and if you really are one who is prone to dig, you may be wondering, how could the Sanhedrin get away with this? They needed the Romans to check off in Jesus' crucifixion because they didn't have the authority. Well, they still didn't have the authority here to commit execution. They didn't have the authority, the Sanhedrin did not, in a Roman culture to carry out execution. And so the Sanhedrin could have illegally, and certainly they wouldn't be above that, uh, they, could, they would have to have illegally carried out this stoning of Stephen. 
Basically, what we would expect here, even perhaps by the language, is that this was a mob scene. The end of verse 57 says, with one impulse, they rushed at him. You would assume that things had come to such a, such a boiling point for this group of Jewish leaders. They had heard enough of the truth that they chose to reject, that they ultimately came at him as one person. Verse 58 says they had driven Stephen out of the city. It's kind of reminiscent of Jesus, isn't it? You see a lot of parallels between Stephen and Jesus, actually. They had driven him out of the city, verse 58, says they began stoning him. Customarily, whenever stoning would take place, what they would do is they'd build a platform somewhere around 8, 10 feet high. They'd push the victim off of that platform. Many times they wouldn't even survive the, the, the actual fall itself. At mo- most of the time, if, if they did survive, they'd be incapacitated. We don't know if they did it this way with Stephen. It would appear as though they did not, but customarily they would do that. And after, after they pushed the victim off of the, the, uh, the platform that they had constructed, they would drop a huge stone into their chest, followed by yet another stone. And we have this picture of them just picking up rocks, throwing, throwing, throwing. And that's very possibly what they did with Stephen, but it was not customarily the way stoning took place in those days. It sounds as though it was just one impulse of a mob that had heard enough of the truth, and because of their hard-heartedness and the rejection of the gospel, they chose to eliminate the source they perceived of their problems. And so they drug Stephen out, not too far from what they had done with Christ, and they ultimately, outside the city, would stone him. We find here the first mention of Saul. We'll read of him later in Acts as Paul. In this context, he is an enemy of the Lord Jesus. You can almost see on perhaps Saul's face the effects of this first seed that's planted in in his heart. Verse 29, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul had to be impacted by that. And if he wasn't, he was impacted by Stephen's words in verse 30. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. He died. God's design for the Christian life is that of unconditional surrender. For Stephen, even death was not too high of a price to pay for his relationship with Christ. Would Stephen be rewarded? Absolutely. He would say in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Completely eliminates any view of purgatory or, as Jehovah's Witnesses would have us believe, soul sleep or any other doctrine that says there's some holding tank before the Christian gets to heaven. The thief on the cross, Jesus would say to him, truly this day you'll be with me in paradise. Stephen would look into heaven, see the Son of Man, Jesus, standing there to welcome him and He would say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's no evidence in Scripture of anything other than the fact that when the believer who knows Christ breathes his last or her last, that they step into the very presence of God. Stephen gives us clear evidence of that. And at the same time, paints for us a picture that God's design for the Christian life is that of unconditional surrender. Now let me say this. It is unlikely for you that you will ever give your life as a martyr for Christ. Listen to me. It is unlikely that you will ever give your life as a martyr for Christ. It's not unfathomable. I remember the first trip we ever took to the Philippines. We had the largest uh, U.S. presence that we've ever had there, over 30 people, close to 35 people that were on that team. 
And our presence there was immediately identified. And before the end of that trip, Barry, our missionary there, came to me, one of our leaders on the trip, and he said, we've been contacted by a rebel group that lives in the mountains near this area. They've recognized our presence here. And though they don't make any demands, they've come to us and they've asked for us before we leave to leave behind for them any of our bug spray and any of our malaria meds that we may have left over. They had lost one of their, one of their members lived in, living in the jungle, jungle to malaria, and they had requested, not demanded, but requested that we leave those items behind. Could it have been easily a situation where they made demands and where they wanted to go to an extreme to carry that out? Who's to say it couldn't have been? It's a foreign land where the rules are a bit different than they are here. Could have easily been the case. And so I'm not saying that, that it's impossible for you to give your life as a martyr. You very possibly will. The way things happen today, it's not un- impossible that you couldn't give your life in the mall by some random act of violence that takes place here in our country. But it's unlikely that you will give your life as a martyr. But let me just say this before we begin to close, that it is far easier for us to say, I will die for my Savior, than it is for us to begin to live truly for Him in an attitude of unconditional surrender. It is one thing to say, I will die for Jesus. Any of us can say that. Those words are simple to speak if our heart is not fully engaged and if we're not authentic in the words we speak to God. It's easy to say, I will die for my Savior. It is a wholly different thing to live for him in the marketplace, to live for him on the campus, to live for him in the midst of a culture that does not embrace him the way that many of us do. It is easy to say, I'll die for him. It is far more difficult for us to live for him. And yet what we find here in Stephen is that because of his unconditional surrender, whatever was required of him, he was willing to pay. And I will say that if any of us have a price tag to our following after Jesus, just listen to me. The enemy will be sure that you have many opportunities to pay it. That's the problem in many Christians' lives today. And it's been a problem in my life, and it's a problem that I will constantly have to do battle with in this comfortable culture in which we live. That if we have a price tag attached to our discipleship and our following and our surrender after Jesus, if there is a price tag that exists there that we haven't ripped off and said, this is not for sale, if there's a price tag hanging there, the enemy will make certain that you have every opportunity to pay it. I just heard even yesterday of another person that has once followed after Christ, a very strong testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, yet again, another who has paid the price because the enemy made sure that if that price tag existed, he would have an opportunity to pay. And he did, and his testimony is gone, if what I heard is true. And if you have a price tag attached to your faith, listen, the enemy will make sure that you pay it. Stephen was not for sale. He's not for sale. <laughs> And when he stood before the most intimidating group of people in his religious day, he was not for sale, and he died for his faith. What was the reward? He saw the Savior who died first for him, standing to welcome him home. (laughs) For many of us today, that means nothing. For him, it meant eternity. If your attitude is, if my attitude is, I will follow after Jesus if, and let's be honest, that many times is our attitude. Listen, I will follow after him if whatever is on the other side of if is truly your God. I'll follow after him if he makes me successful. <laughs> and I don't care about all this paying stuff, investing, and it's going to cost me. And, you know, I don't care about that stuff. 
you mean to tell me, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I commit my life to you, you're going to make me a success. I'll follow Jesus if he makes me successful. Jesus is not your God. Your success is. Because whatever is on the other side of if (laughs) is your idol. Oh, I'll follow after Jesus if he blesses me. You don't tell me all this Hebrew stuff about Hebrews chapter 11, those who who died not seeing the inheritance that was to come, and it's going to cost me, and I may give my life to the flames, and I may be as many in church history that have given their lives for Christ, and I've got to surrender certain things, lay down certain things if I'm going to follow after him. don't, Don't give me all that. You're telling me, Brooks, that if I surrender and if I follow after Jesus and I follow hard after him, you mean to tell me that he's going to bless me? I'll follow after Jesus if he blesses me. Jesus is not your God. Your happiness is. And one of the problems with the health and wealth gospel today that we hear spouted out across the airwaves of our country is that it tells you that if you follow Jesus and if you surrender yourself to him, you'll have material blessing and you'll have cars you never dreamed of in your driveway and you'll have more money than you've ever dreamed of. And if you sow a little seed here, God's going to multiply it. Explain that kind of junk to the people who live in the Philippines that follow hard after Christ and they eat rice meal after meal after meal after meal. You see, even the health and wealth gospel that permeates this country in which we live today proves our own idolatry because it's not Jesus that we care for, it's our own comfort. Who wouldn't follow after Jesus when he, when he gives us more money than we know what to do with, when he builds houses bigger than we could have ever expected, when he keeps us healthy, heals us of every disease, pours into our bank accounts all the things we've ever dreamed of? Who wouldn't follow after Jesus when he does that kind of stuff? Listen, it's not Jesus those people follow. It is whatever comes after the if. And if he, follow, if he blesses me, and if he fills my coffers, and if he keeps me healthy, and if he pours out into my life, then I'll follow him. Stephen had none of that. He was a table waiter who died as the first recorded martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is written in the book that will survive the ages as a result. And so I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, Jesus said, if anyone will follow after me, I would have got here if I had time. I'm already late. But if anyone follow, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. You might die. (laughs) and many did and many will and it may cost you more than you could ever see this side of heaven but my design for the Christian life is nothing less than unconditional surrender it's the ultimate test of faith Lord when you give me nothing will I still follow you Stephen gave all because a Savior had paid all. Simple question this morning. How closely will you follow the one who has paid everything for you? Is there anything that stands between you and unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's what I say. Not to pump my ego because you know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does matter to me how many come, how many pray, how many respond because I love you. But I don't need people to flood an aisle to feel good about myself. All I need to know is I delivered what God told me to deliver, and that's all that matters to me. I don't need you to come for me. The reason we respond is for him and for ourselves. And I'd be willing to say, in church this size, two services, 400 adults perhaps, 350, however many are here today, there's going to be quite a few who have some things to lay down to say, Lord, today I surrender with heads bowed and eyes closed.
for some this morning, the first step is to surrender yourself. You know, the good news of the Bible is that it tells us right where we stand with God. That without Jesus, we stand condemned, we stand in judgment because of our sin. God is holy, and he's perfect. And to allow sin to come unchecked into heaven would compromise his own holiness. And so it has to be paid for. Every one of us have sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. The Bible tells us that because God loves us so greatly that he chose to pay the penalty for us, that when he sent Jesus to die, and when he died, his death on that cross, he paid the penalty that was required as a perfect sacrifice. And when he rose, he rose proving himself to be the God that he always claimed to be. He's as alive today as he was on the day that he resurrected. And he stands ready to take over the life that calls on him by faith. And so, what about for you this morning? If you've never given your life to Christ, and, and I've not said if you've never been to church because you're here. I've not said if, if you've never done any good deeds because I'm sure you've done many. But if you've never given your life to Christ, that's the only thing that makes us right with God. If you've never turned from sin and you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, then today, right where you sit, you have an opportunity to do that. And my encouragement would be that if you hear the voice of God speaking to your heart, if you have that sense of unsettledness that there are things that are not right, and it's far louder speaking to your heart than my voice could ever be, then God, I believe, this morning is calling you to a relationship with himself. And the response is to do just as the Bible says, to turn from your sin, to change your mind about it, and to actually ask Jesus himself to forgive you and to step into your life and to be first for you from this day forward. Once you do that right where you sit, and if you do that and if you pray a prayer of giving your life to Christ, I want to hear about it. I'd love to know. We want to talk with you and share with you how God can grow you in your new relationship. But right where you sit, if this is a concern for you and if your hunger and your desire this morning is to be right with God, won't you pray and just ask Jesus to forgive you and to be first for you? If you have questions, I'll be down front after the service. would love to talk to you about those questions. But don't put it off. Christian, what about for you? What's on the other side of if for you? Is there a price tag to your surrender to Christ? Are you following Jesus only if he does certain things, gives certain things? Or is there no price tag? Have you ripped that off long ago? If not, you can rip it off today. And live your Christian life without a price tag. Unconditionally surrender to him. Regardless of what comes, you trust him and you love him and praise him. I promise you, he'll never do anything that will compromise his glory, and he'll never do anything that won't be for your ultimate best. He'll use your life. It'll be hard days that'll come. Days when you feel the cost more than others. But in the end, I'm telling you, it will have been worth every ounce that you've paid. God bless now the decisions that are made, we pray. This is a significant time, Lord. Had the early church missed it on this point of surrender, Lord, we would perhaps not have our New Testament. And so, Lord, we thank you that they got it right. And in so doing, painted a picture for us. Help us to not settle for anything less than a full-blown, all-out surrender to you. Bless now the decisions that help us to do that. And be glorified in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as Nathan.